is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Do you remember when you heard the news? That's often a question that burns a point in time in a person's memory bank. We caught up with National Park Service and Pearl Harbor historian Daniel Martinez, who was traveling in Europe when he heard of the death of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. It brought back a flood of memories tied to the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the death of another world leader. The word assassination gripped his heart. You know, I was at my hotel in Rome. I just, it, it was, what? And knowing, you know, that he had a security detail while he was here in 2016, and I was around him so much during his visit, it just happened that I was the person selected to be at a couple of these events that he was honoring the World War II dead, and, and in particular the Japanese dead at Pearl Harbor. And I, it just struck me that there's something wrong. And, you know, I, I, as a young man, I grew up with the shock of President Kennedy's death and my family reacting to that. I never saw my parents cry. I did that day, 1963. And then I saw it when I was there at the Ambassador Hotel and my candidate, Robert Kennedy, and was in the ballroom below where he was assassinated. Dr. King's assassination, I know where I was at that time, and now another one. And it just, with this one, it was somewhat personal. I had been with Prime Minister on a number of activities and found him to be engaging and kind. And he had that sincerity that sometimes you rarely see in politicians. I think sometimes they go through the motions of some of these things, and not to be critical, but for Prime Minister to come to Hawaii and meet with President Obama and then be in joint services of reconciliation in light of, their, of the president's visit to Hiroshima, it seemed to, to align itself that this was the moment in which the two countries were meeting and going to the U.S. Arizona Memorial for the first time together. And it was a special moment. I've often thought I should write about it. And now I guess I'm pushed more towards that. To be uh, one of the eyewitnesses, along with Superintendent Jacqueline Ashwell at the time, we were privy to something that most National Park Service employees don't ever have an opportunity to do that. And I think that the thing that touched me the most about Shinzo Abe was his sincerity when he came to visit and wanted me to take him on a step-by-step walkthrough of the museum and asked me to read the introduction to the museum so it could be shared with the rest of the uh, uh, prime minister's party. And he was very thoughtful and stop to ask questions, and he loved the idea, or at least he shared his appreciation that we had State of Mind America and State of Mind Japan, two panels back-to-back, and that Japanese faces, which were the actually the Japanese officials' faces, were shining through on the American side, and then on the American side, President Roosevelt's face was shining through it. And he understood the subtlety of that. And so when I walked him through that, and his questions were sparse, but inquisitive at points about why this and why that. And when he saw the Japanese exhibit, which ranges from official newsreels of that period, I told him that many Japanese visitors see this, and they've never seen these newsreels, never really understood what Japan was like before the war and what it was like during the war in which it promoted its victories and its militarism. And then the other thing that touched him was the picture of Babe Ruth, and I explained to him that I had seen this picture of Babe Ruth in Japan with young Japanese little leaguers sitting together on a ball field in Japan, and I had uh, helped with the caption saying that these children will be the soldiers of World War II in a few scant years. And he was really uh, touched by that and the connection of baseball, which is so intrinsic now to Japan, that it's also their official sport. So it it was that, and then he paused um, at the President Roosevelt's letter to the Emperor of Japan that was sent the night before the attack. And he uh, he wasn't aware of it, And, and I... And, of course, you can't expect a prime minister to be a historian. And so it was one of those museum surprises some of our 
visitors get that they learned something new they didn't know and that was for him uh, knowing that there was a letter sent to the emperor trying to avert the war and you shared with me that uh, one comment that he made about the exit was he thought it was fair yeah they, he he had come to see the exhibit because he had been told that the museum had was honest it had told an honest story and then at toward the end of the walkthrough he mentioned through an interpreter to me that he thought that the exhibit was very fair and he said that as he came to the end of the exhibit where the arizona today model is but also um you know, the, the famous uh, Sadako crane is exhibited. And so I think that he felt that the Japanese part of that story was fairly represented and that we, they were just a footnote not or, uh, you know, a faceless enemy, but rather uh, a, mo a mortal enemy and now a fast friend. And the Sadako crane being there was the cement that he felt that it was fair and, and an honest exhibit. And he, that's why he wanted to come see it. Many of his uh, constituents and friends had told him about the museum. And, and of course, the uh, key to some of this is, you know, the existing Japanese uh, <clears throat> consul generals we have here have visited and are, you know, key guests to our ceremony every year. And I think that that the last council general uh, before the one that's recently appointed here shared that with, with the prime minister. And I think that that was all part of it, that they, they felt they could come there and not be historically embarrassed. I remember being there uh, on that day when the two world leaders met. I was fortunate enough to cover it uh, for news. Yeah, wasn't and, that something? And seeing those pictures, I had just, by sheer coincidence, you know, flipped through those pictures that week mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, was very sad, you know, just recalling those memories. But you were actually able to be on the Admiral's yacht and, and along with yeah, the Prime the Minister, yes, yeah. to, to get up uh, to yeah, the yeah, Arizona. Super, yeah, Superintendent Ashwell and I were invited, and I was supposed to um, share the stories through the translators, and there's pictures of it. A couple of pictures are online on that. To me, it was a moment that I never in my lifetime would think I would be between two world leaders that were finally coming to grips to jointly visit the USS Arizona Memorial after all those years. And, you know, I give President Obama a lot of credit because he went to Hiroshima and whoever advised him on that understood that for the Japanese and for world culture, the victor goes to the place of the vanquished, and for them it was Hiroshima. And for Abe to come to where the Americans had been hit and lost, he had come to pay his respects here. And and then when they met with the Pearl Harbor survivors on, on the naval base, because there was a secondary ceremony after the visit to the memorial, Abby did something very uncharacteristic, and I don't know if people noticed it, but I, I was shocked. Um, he shook hands with uh, two of the survivors, and so did the president. They were they were sitting because you know they were in their 90s, and uh, they were dockside there, right across from the memorial. And uh, suddenly, Abisan reaches out and embraces one of the Pearl Harbor survivors. And, Watch it for a moment for, for that. But he was on the USS Pennsylvania and he'd been terribly wounded. And he had in the he'd lost his wife and then he remarried and he married a Japanese national as his wife. And she had lost her husband who had been also in the Japanese army but had survived the war. And so he knew that story. And Japanese in, by culture, don't hug. But in this particular case, he hugged him. And 
Uh, it was the only person that was hugged of the three survivors. And I was standing within maybe 25 yards. And I was just shocked because that's not the culture. But he must have felt, uh, I can only think that he was part of this unique family of warriors and that he had married a Japanese woman. And he, he must have been briefed on it and felt that he could extend it as uh, to him as a family member. It, it was just a, just a moment. And when I see that picture, even to this day, I feel really strongly emotional because I, I've understood the Japanese culture for some time and hugging is really something that's remanded to just close family members. And it's not like how we do it, which is like handshake, but it was a, just a special moment. And, and of all the things that happened, whether it was on the barge speaking to him or or watching him play for wreaths in the memorial room. Just the talking to them and explaining the attack and its effect, and also telling the story of President Kennedy and his visit, that he intended to come, be the first president to go to Japan and meet with the Japanese veterans that had been on the destroyer Amagiri that had rammed his PT boat. And he was going to bring the PT-109 survivors there. And there was supposed to be a... Telstar broadcast on the date of November 22nd, 1963. And because what happened in Dallas, uh, that was not broadcast, and the first president to visit Japan would not be John F. Kennedy. It would be another president. And that story, they did not know. The irony was that Ambassador Kennedy, Carolyn Kennedy, was on that boat as well. Yeah, powerful memories, you know, at a time when you think that, you know, both of those world leaders, you know, ended up victims of an assassination. Yeah, it is something that President Kennedy's wish, and that, that video still exists at the Kennedy Library and the transcripts of that does. But even then, reaching out in 1963, scant 20-some 20 years since the war had ended in 1945, they were still searching to mend that that fence and, and build this relationship. And, you know, when I came here, there was still hard feelings. And it wasn't until President Bush reminded them in 1991 that we're no longer enemies. We're close friends. And we've been friends and allies since the ending of the war in 1945. And he had to quell a number of Pearl Harbor survivors that were still angry at Japan angry at their success uh, because of they were so successful economically, they were juggernauts. And and we were the ones that helped rebuild their country. So the, the speech that President George Bush gave in 1991, which I think was one of the greatest that he gave, in a large part, I think, paved the way for Shinzo Abe and President Obama to meet as leaders of the country and kind of reassert that moment of the president's speech that said, I have no rancor in my heart towards Germany and Japan, and show it publicly by going to Hiroshima and then renewing it at Pearl Harbor at the USS Arizona Memorial. I think that that was something that will be remembered and recorded, and I think that it'll enshrine at least the memory of Shinzo Abe and his extension to this country of a hand of peace. That was Daniel Martinez, Chief Historian of the World War II Valor in the Pacific National Monument at Pearl Harbor. He was sharing his very personal memories of the last visit by former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to Honolulu to mark the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the reconciliation between the two countries. Books of condolences signed by residents of Oahu and the Big Island are being sent to Japan as that country prepares for an official memorial service for the slain leader later this fall. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanahi, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. 
July is National Culinary Arts Month, so today's quiz centers on food, sort of. It depends on whether you eat the beloved pink uh, lunch meat that we all know as Spam. Considered an unappetizing budget food in uh, some parts of the country, Spam in Hawaii has long been a staple in the local diet. We even have an annual festival in Waikiki dedicated to it, the Spam Jam. It shouldn't surprise you then to hear that Hawaii consumes over 7 million cans of the stuff yearly, more than four cans for everyone in the state. Spam's popularity in the islands, like many other quirks of local culture, stems from the war years. During World War II, the U.S. government needed a way to feed the large military presence stationed in Hawaii. Spam was a cheap, non-perishable protein source that packed well and required no refrigeration. Here's our question for today. Officially, Spam is short for spiced ham, but what was the soldier's name for it during the war? If you know, call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. We'll have the answer for you later in the show. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. We hear from reporter Blaze Level, who has a story about a call for tougher penalties in public corruption cases. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so your story, three out of four county uh, prosecutors want uh, tougher uh, penalties for public corruption cases. Yeah, Honolulu prosecutor Steve Ahm and prosecutors from Kauai and Maui counties want enhanced penalties for public officials who break the law. They raised uh, these issues yesterday at the Commission to Improve Standards of Conduct. Uh, That's a group that was convened by the House earlier this year following uh, federal bribery charges being filed against two former state lawmakers. And that group has been tasked with beefing up Hawaii's uh, standards of conduct. Uh, They're taking a look at campaign finance laws, election laws, and now they're turning their attention to finding ways to tamp down on government corruption. Right. And we saw the cases of uh, the uh, uh, two lawmakers um, this year um, pleading guilty to uh, fraud. Right. There was though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bribery. And there was those. They also brought up the DPP employees who were charged. Obviously, former police chief Louis Kealoha and Catherine Kealoha. And the point the prosecutors were making was all of these cases were brought by the feds. Um, they've long called for more tools in their arsenal to combat public corruption and white-collar crime in the state. Uh, specifically yesterday, they were asking for things like mandatory minimum sentences and other types of enhanced punishment. Uh, Am was saying that, you know, when you're charged by the feds, you basically know that you're definitely going to see some prison time. Here in Hawaii, judges have discretion uh, on the amount of sentencing that you get, and you also go before the Hawaii Paroling Authority, which could raise or you know lower the sentence. And so they they want this threat of jail time. Oh, I'm sorry, prison time to you know kind of hover over these cases to either get cooperation from people involved in white collar crime or public corruption, or as a deterrent. I, I just would like to point out, though, that, you know, Am and other state attorneys general yesterday said that a lot of the details of these proposals are still being worked out, but they do plan to introduce a package of bills to the legislature next year to consider. So this call for harsher penalties, um, I'm just curious, why just three out of the four counties? 
well, those are the three out of the four counties that made it to, <laughs> to the commission oh, meeting gotcha. yesterday. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't know where the Big Island stands on this, but it does sound like the um, state attorney general, Holly Shikata, is trying to work with all the counties to get an agreement on this package of bills. Though, when Om first raised the idea yesterday, I did sense some concern among some of the commission members that, you know, there'd be mandatory minimums for lots of other crimes besides those uh, dealing with public corruption, and that could make corrections even more punitive. But Om, um, you know, reassured them that they're really focusing on public corruption and not trying to expand this to all the crimes. He said the prosecutors don't want to upend the entire system. Yeah, but I can see, you know, their point, right? Uh, hold these lawmakers or these folks, these um, public servants, to a higher standard. Exactly. And another idea that they raised yesterday was having a more investigative kind of grand jury at the state level, something we've seen, you know, um, that's happening right now at the federal level in district court, uh, giving our grand juries at the state, you know, more powers to subpoena things uh, and other tools that uh, grand juries in federal courts can utilize. And uh, your story says that all masks for you know, resources to beef up those units um like in the AG's office, and I and I, I believe Civil Beat has done stories about that. You know, there's some internal strife in there that uh, some of these cases, you know, haven't uh, gone anywhere. Right. The attorney general uh, was there yesterday, too, and she said that they're actually going to be putting some of the additional funding lawmakers gave them to set up one of these new units to investigate white-collar crime. Uh, it's a proposal like that previously got pushed back from one of the state's top investigators who said that, uh, you know, his division was working on all these cases, but they, they've never taken a lot of them to prosecution. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm sure a lot of folks feel uneasy that it takes, you know, federal invest investigators, folks from the outside to come in and clean things up. Right, exactly. And I think that's why there's this renewed push now from the prosecutors and state law enforcement to get more of these tools so that they can kind of mirror um, things that the feds do here. Yeah, and I know these cases have certainly raised lots of questions about uh, uh, retirements of people uh, who've been convicted of crimes, and uh, I'm sure uh, there'll be a lot of uh, interest in what happens there as well. Right. Right now you can actually keep half of them, even if you're a convicted felon, <laughs> even under federal, uh, I mean, under our state law, but that's probably going to be something that the next legislature takes up with all the public outrage over it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering resources to Hawaii's educators, including the workshop Teaching for Artistic Behaviors, open to the community, honolulumuseum.org slash educators. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew McKay, author of Seeking Jordan. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how I learned the truth about death and the invisible universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. This week, thousands of scientists and their families are in town for what's known as the Goldschmidt Conference. It's named for Victor M. Goldschmidt, regarded as the father of modern geochemistry. We talked to John Rages about the future of bookings of large conventions, as lead time for many of these conferences is several years in the making. Rages is a senior vice president for the Hawaii Visitors and Conventions Bureau. He covers meetings, conventions, and incentives, and works under the uh, Meet Hawaii program. Overall, sessions are going well. They've gotten good attendance. In fact, they're 20% higher. Their original attendance was 2,500, and they're uh, over 3,000 people. Wow. So talk about that. I mean, really, this is the first 
real shot in the arm like this, right, since the pandemic, to have a group uh, hold a convention here? It is. In fact, um, I started in this position in 2020, and I only referenced that is 2020 was going to be the best year at the Hawaii Convention Center with over 20 citywide groups. Uh, as you know, in March, we had the COVID-19 pandemic, and 2022 is very symbolic for all of us in the point that uh, Goldschmidt is our fourth citywide event. Uh, we started in January and had three other citywide events, and many of those citywide events were supposed to take place in 20 or 21, and we had to move and relocate them to 22 because of the pandemic. So to your point, everybody uh, does not take for granted uh, to see a citywide event in the convention center, you know, the positive of staying in hotels, restaurants, uh, bringing visitors uh, to Hawaii uh, is very important. And what I would also add is that we're very much in alignment when we talk about meetings, conventions, and incentive, MCI. Uh, they're an organized group, so we are targeting groups that are respectful, that understand when they come to Hawaii, uh, they have to give back through our Malama Hawaii program or volunteer. So it's a it's the right type of customer, as you know. There's been a lot of conversation of over tourism and resident sentiment. So we think meetings, convention, incentives, and Goldschmidt is a perfect example of that. Uh, they uh, for the attendees, they've asked them to mask. They've asked them to be vaccinated. Uh, they have really talked about when you come to Hawaii either as a group or as individual to look for a way to volunteer and give back. Uh, because Goldschmidt is the premier geochemistry conference in the world, uh, you have people that are very sensitive to natural resources and the environment. And we also are in alignment with the Hawaii Tourism Authority when we talk about community, culture, natural resources, and marketing. So targeting groups like Goldschmidt, which is a scientific group uh, that can give back. In fact, what was great is on Monday, over 100 University of Hawaii students who are studying in the geochemistry area came over and were able to participate in the conference. So again, we're, we're looking and targeting citywide for the future uh, to have and reflect uh, what we find most important uh, about Hawaii. And this conference, uh, I'm told, also uh, is able to showcase some of our bright minds. Absolutely. In fact, we have a program called the Alele Program. And different from most other destinations is we try to identify local contacts that are involved in different disciplines. Uh, so, you know, in the citywide arena of booking events, there's an association for everything. So what I'm really talking about is we were able to align with the University of Hawaii and many of our preeminent geochemistry professionals and instructors and with the University of Hawaii. And it was really through their help that we did a joint presentation. A lot of times in our business, we're taking care of the, the rates, the dates and the space, meaning working with the hotels, working with the convention center and working with the customer. Uh, but what we try to do differently with our LLA program is we want to highlight that, for example, geochemistry and the University of Hawaii uh, have great programs. And so many uh, locals were part of the bid process. When you um, invite a conference like uh, Goldschmidt, it can be very competitive. In fact, 2019, before the pandemic, it was in Barcelona. Next year, it's gonna be in, uh, in France. And the following year, it's in Chicago. So there's a whole bid process. They partner with the European Geochemistry Society. So every other year, it goes between the U.S. and Europe. But with the Alele program, we were able to differentiate. Uh, not only do we want the business side of, of a citywide, but we also have the community uh, that can support their area of discipline. I understand that there's a theme going with this conference, what, geology through a cultural lens. Yes. So, you know, we've worked really closely with Goldschmidt and the key contact. They are very sensitive and aware that wherever they go, that they reflect the 
things that are most important to the community. So again, you know, we have through Hawaii Tourism Authority and Meet Hawaii and the Hawaii Visitor Convention Bureau, which we're a part of, have really emphasized that it's important to reflect. And culture obviously is very important in Hawaii, as long with our community and our natural resources. So it's nice to see a citywide event come in. And again, many of the future events that we are looking to bring to Hawaii are medical, uh, scientific, or have that culture within their associations or companies that understand culture and giving back to a community. So you're targeting that groups that will respect the aina and respect the culture when they come over. What can you tell us about future bookings? Because I know you normally need, you know, some lead time. And during the pandemic, you know, was anyone's guess as to when we could rebook? Everybody was keeping their fingers crossed. So let's look down the the road. What can you share with us? So what we can share is we have a short-term and long-term plan. And what's interesting about citywide events and and groups that book a convention center is there's actually a five- to nine-year process because it's such a large event and it's very competitive. So as we are in 2022, if you take the five-year number, that really means 2027 and beyond. So basically on the short-term strategy, is that we're looking at uh, various corporate events because corporate citywide events book within a three-year window. So that allows us to fill the pipeline with short-term corporate events. And then obviously sports events. Uh, The uh, convention center did a nice job in investing over a million dollars in really sports equipment that allows uh, competitive sports like basketball, volleyball, dance, et cetera. So on the short term, we are focusing uh, in groups that have open dates within that short term period. Uh, on a long term, it's really capturing the association business. And there's an association for everything. And we're really looking at financial, medical, scientific and engineering. That seems to be a target market that really is aligned with, as we talked about, some of the most important things beyond just booking a citywide event. We actually have citywide sellers that are located in the San Francisco area that covers the West Coast for corporate, but then we also have in the markets of the Midwest, Chicago, and in the D.C. area, we have two citywide sellers in each of those markets, Chicago and the D.C. area that are constantly calling on associations that happen open years from 27 all the way out past 32, because now is the time to speak to them. And you are correct. During the pandemic, uh, people had put face-to-face meetings on hold. I think Goldschmidt is a good indication of the attractiveness of Hawaii exceeding their registration and the desire to have a meeting you know, in Hawaii. So those are the short-term and long-term. They're really about market segments, type of business, and the ability to find the open years. And then also, as I talked about, really leveraging our Alele program uh, to find in those areas people locally that are parts of boards or associations that can help us with the bid process. And so what happens going forward? You know, I know you've got a a big volleyball tournament that's going to draw several thousand people, but... You know, it was the local events that really kept the convention center going. You know, the Okinawan Festival, you know, those kinds of things. But when you start booking these larger conventions, you know, we're going to need space and times. And so how do you balance that? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's much like in a hotel environment. Uh, What you're talking about is Terry Orton, who's the general manager of the Hawaii Convention Center, has a great local team. So they book within a 12-month period. Uh, And we book outside of that. So uh, we are constantly working very closely with the Hawaii Convention Center because it's it's like a puzzle. It's all space management. So what we're doing is trying to understand what groups can meet, you know, in future years, how to place them, uh, and then working with the Hawaii Convention Center local sales team that if those open dates are available, they can book through that. You know, the good news is for 24 and 25, we are ahead of, of our pace on the number of conventions, but also the type and the number of room nights that they bring in. It's really 26 
27 and beyond, where we have a lot of focus on identifying, again, those target markets that have open dates and to convince them to consider Hawaii and the Hawaii Convention Center. So it is a strategic puzzle that takes a lot of communication between the local Hawaii Convention Center team and our team. Okay, but 2026, uh, a little soft, but uh, firmed up for 24 and 25. Looks pretty good. Yeah, 24 and 25, we are ahead of pace. But again, we've been giving monthly updates to Hawaii Tourism Authority. They have a monthly branding standing committee. And Mm -hmm. so Terry, who again is the general manager of the convention center and myself, report on the pipeline. And what we mean by that, Catherine, is what are the total number of tentatives that are outstanding? What can we convert? from those number of tentatives into definites by year. So we're constantly looking at that and and really adjusting strategy when needed. So I oversee the sales and marketing for meetings, conventions, and incentives to all of Hawaii. And what that means is we are generating lead opportunities for the hotels that can have meetings within the hotel. Then we have a separate team, our citywide sellers, which are booking what we're talking about now. So it is under Meet Hawaii, where we do uh, meetings, conventions, and incentives, and specifically uh, working with the Hawaii Convention Center. And what I will say is that a Convention and Visitors Bureau, if you look at most destination marketing organizations or most destinations, uh, the Convention and Visitors Bureau normally does the sales and marketing. Prior to 2020, it was with the Hawaii Convention Center Mm-hmm. Hawaii Tourism Authority made the decision to go back to this model. And to your point, you know, we started in 2020, had a pandemic for two years, and really are hitting the ground running on making sure that that convention center has the optimal amount of groups and room nights per year. That was John Rages, who works with the Hawaii Visitors and Conventions Bureau on the future of large event bookings in our state. Future conferences offer a hybrid of in-person and hybrid events. Uh, He shares that bookings for 2024 and 2025 are looking strong and that HVCB uh, is targeting more scientific and environmental groups that would tend to be more respectful of the AINA. In today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge of the history behind the ever-popular meat-in-a-can spam. It's such a staple in the local diet. We have spam musubi, spam and eggs, spam and rice, spam, spam, and more spam. It's a local delicacy that established its foothold during the war years over 70 years ago and has been here ever since. From 1941 to 1945, Hormel shipped out a staggering 100 million pounds of spam to feed hungry troops stationed in Hawaii and abroad. With so much spam coming in, GIs were eager to sell it or trade it, and it quickly became popular with locals here. We asked you what U.S. soldiers during World War II called spam when it was shipped to them as uh, rations. Though uh, Hormel meant for spam to be a shortened name for spiced ham, GIs nicknamed the stuff Special Army Meat, perhaps alluding to spam's similarities to the mystery meat sometimes found lurking in school cafeteria lunches. Just something to think about next time you're craving a musubi. And no one knew the answer today, but a listener, Paul, called in with this guess. Spam is ham that failed its physical. So, Paul, you get an honorable mention. That's today's quiz. Uh, if you've got an idea that you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum's new exhibition, Taxonomy, Our Lives Depend on It, exploring how naming plants and animals is essential to understanding life's diversity. Opens July 23rd, bishopmuseum.org. Next time on The World... Just don't walk on the polar bear tracks. We check in on polar bears living near the North Pole on the Svalbard Islands. Climate change is taking its toll there, but not on these animals, not yet. Maybe you should think that it's already meant trouble for the polar bears in Svalbard, but what we've actually seen is that they are still doing fine. How the Svalbard polar bears are thriving in a rapidly changing Arctic. It's on The World. 
beginning this afternoon at 1. When our listeners have comments about stories that we air, they often reach out to us on our talkback line. And from time to time, we share those messages on air with you. After our jellyfish story, our Hutchinson wrote in, while it's very considerate of the volunteers scooping up the box jellyfish to minimize hazards to beachgoers and visitors, the almost monthly phenomena is a natural one that also provides a key part of the South Shore's ecosystem. Jellyfish provide food for Honu and other sea creatures, for example. Listeners and those volunteers need to also be aware that beachgoers and visitors and humans in general are in the box jellyfish and sea creatures' natural habitat. How would the volunteers feel if others went into their home or yard and removed items that they thought didn't belong to her home or yard? Well, we are the ones who are invading or visiting their habitat and therefore should allow nature to take its course. We are the ones that need to take care of it um, during that brief monthly period to respect the South Shore ecosystem if we would like to enjoy their natural habitat. And we also heard this after our segment on the new Jerry Lopez documentary. Aloha, this is Bradley in Coloco. I used to surf Hokipa, and I met John Cheverson out there, the founder of Surfer Magazine. He talked about Ragdoll, about relaxing when you're underwater, getting tossed around like the washing machines, we call it. It's not an original thought of Jerry, who, who's a fantastic guy. I wound up in a band with John Severson, an improvised band of country longies. I met him in the water, and he had two daughters with, with braided hair, surfing. Pretty amazing life in Hawaii. Aloha. Remember the rag doll when you get wiped out. <laughs> okay, thanks for the feedback there. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Call our Facebook line at uh, 792-8217 to share your thoughts. We are learning more about climate change every day. Sometimes all the information can feel like too much. That's why hundreds of writers, researchers, and artists banded together to create the Carbon Almanac just out this week. The book compiles all the latest on climate change. It uses essays, graphs, and even cartoons to tell the story of our warming planet. Uh, Richie Bilawan is a Molokai-based photographer who helped with the creative aspects of the book. She talked to the conversation's intern, uh, Emily Tom, about her process. I hate getting photographed. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of people do, and I, I, I'm guessing that that's because when you see photographs, sometimes you don't actually feel seen. It might not actually be you. So my goal as a photographer in whatever that I photograph, whether it be something landscapey or um, a baby or a woman or a couple, is to try to capture them as they are. Um, so the house as it is, um, this box of tissues as it is in the environment that it's in, um, and yeah, I just tried to get that intimacy, even with inanimate objects in my work. Yeah, I actually have printed some of your photos that were some of my favorites. And the first one, I'll just slide it across the table to you, from your The Ruins in Mexico City collection. Can you describe that one first? Sure, this photo was taken in Tulum some, some years ago. and. With the photos of the ruins, there are tourists everywhere. Mm. And Tulum is very, very busy with tourists all the time. So I tried to capture what the ruins might look like maybe 300 years ago without tourists or 400 years ago. Just tried to create photographs that could be mistaken as something taken quite a long time ago. Do you feel like that philosophy of trying to capture something before humans or in its natural state as it is has affected the way that you view your work on the carbon almanac and climate change at all? Mm. I never really thought about that, but now that you now that you bring it up, there is some level of preservation that I carry in my heart or you can call it heavy nostalgia, I guess, <laughs> for the way things might have been or even with the medium that I use film. But yeah, preservation is 
is a huge theme for me um, in my work. I feel like the photographs that I love the most are the ones that I try to emulate, the the ones that preserve a memory of a grandfather when he was 18 or photos of them just getting married. These are photos that I look at over and over again. And the work that I create is, I'm hopeful that that's what it would mean to another person or another family. Like I want that to be the photo that your great, great, great grandchildren, you know, look at when they reference you. Mm. Um, I'm going to put a pin in that because what I should have asked you first was just in general to describe your contributions to the book. I know that you also worked on a photo book and you're part of the newsletter. So tell us about what's going on there. Yeah, sure. I, I like to be behind the camera. I like to be behind the scenes. So I contributed um, to a lot of content surrounding the almanac. I did help with some pages in the almanac itself, but I helped to produce three photo books uh, that are downloadable on the website. I also wrote some emails, a bunch of emails for The Daily Difference, uh, which is a free newsletter that you can sign up for, subscribe to on our website as well that will give you an email, a short email every single day with a nudge on how to contribute or how to change things in our systems, in our everyday lives. We're all in this together, and individual actions really aren't going to change the whole world. Mm. But it is going to take us coming together and seeing each other eye to eye to change things on a systemic level, realizing that this problem is so much bigger than one person can do alone was a huge relief for me. Mm. Just, we're not gonna get through this crisis by shaming people into composting, you know, or shaming mm. people into recycling correctly because only 9% of our plastic is actually recycled. So what is the problem? Let's find out together. You know, the Carbon Almanac is such an international endeavor, but how do you try to bring in the perspective of someone who has grown up in paradise, seeing things um, take a turn for the worst? In the project, I worked with people from over 40 different countries all over the world, and some places are experiencing climate change at a very, very severe degree. We're talking Bangladesh, where there's heat waves um, and flooding in the Philippines. And I think sometimes, because we quite literally, I think, still have the best weather in the world, we can forget about what others are experiencing. So in a way, it was really humbling to be exposed in real time to things people were experiencing. To answer your question, I think that being from Hawaii and being surrounded by so much beauty, it just instills even more of this feeling that we need to protect it. It's so easy, especially as an artist and as a photographer, to focus on you know, the detrimental effects of climate change. But you took a different step. Um, you also brought up your three-part photo book. You, know, you have one part about solutions and then a third part about art. Why do you feel it was important to include climate solutions as part of that narrative and not just focus on the disaster? Sure, sure. So Seeds of Hope is the middle section of the book. Um, it's There's a lot of doom culture surrounding or doom talk surrounding climate change, and it's simply not productive um, to continue thinking that way and operating that way. And we really wanted to highlight cool things that were happening around the world, solutions, systemic solutions, um, like planting a rice field next to anywhere in the city or, you know, really implementing green architecture. I would imagine would be really connected to the role of art and climate change. How do you feel as a photographer that artists are uniquely positioned to make a difference in this fight against climate change? Sometimes it'll take a photograph or sometimes it'll take something that's devastatingly beautiful to change your mind about something or to get you to think a certain way or a different way about how the world has been turning. So I think artists have an incredibly important part to play in climate change. And uh, that's not something that I used to think before. I used to feel like 
if I'm an artist and I want to address something climate, I have to take a landscape photo or mm -hmm. I have to take a photo of something really devastating happening or I have to be an environmentalist or a conservationist and work with a certain group and that's simply not the case. Mm -hmm. um, I really think that we can start having these conversations and use our mediums as artists in various ways to get our points across, to get feelings across, to get people to feel what we feel, see what we see. What are your hopes for this in the future, whether it be the Carbon Almanac or just your personal photography? Like, what's the dream? <laughs> well, the dream would be to make some sort of difference. And I'd love to just work with more people. I'd love more people to get to know what's going on with our Earth and really understand what we're dealing with. Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm usually behind the scenes um, producing work for others or myself behind the camera. Um, and I'm not usually at the forefront speaking about things all the time, but this project has changed me in a big way. And that is, you know, the imposter syndrome was quite strong and it's really a lie. And if you have something to offer the world, just do it, just show it, just share it. I think that's something that's um, pushing me every day, and I just want to continue to live that. That was great. Thank you so much, Richie. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And good luck with everything. Thanks. And that was photographer uh, Richie Bilouan. She helped put together the Carbon Almanac, an all-encompassing book about climate change. Bilouan will be at the shop in Kaimuki for a book signing this Saturday from 11 to 2. For more information, go to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from a former FBI agent turned school administrator. Enforcer becomes educator. Give us some feedback. Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and you can connect with us on Facebook too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.